0: Well, good morning to all of you. Let us open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter six. And uh, I was meditating on the last few words we were singing together, that wonderful hymn that most of you are familiar with, Holy, Holy, Holy. And uh, I just wanted to mention how there's only one reason why we can come together as people and actually celebrate the holiness of God. There's only one reason it's Christ Jesus. Do you realize that if you are not a believer in Christ Jesus, those words are of condemnation. You couldn't even approach a holy God apart from Christ Jesus. So the only reason we can celebrate the holiness of God is because we are gospel people. And we believe that the holiness of God has been satisfied and his justice satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why we celebrate Jesus and we look to Jesus and we believe in Jesus. It's all about Christ. So let us read now in Ephesians chapter six, beginning in verse 10, and we'll read through verse 18 or so. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil point out one aspect of those verses that it is very clear. There was a sense of holy urgency in the mind of the Apostle Paul. There was a sense of holy urgency. This is important. This matters. This is real battle. There's real evil in the world. There's a real pursuit of holiness and righteousness in our lives. This matters. Now, let me ask you this. Do you live your life With a holy sense of urgency for your spiritual well being and for the spread of the glory of God. I I fear that many of us are just cruising along the Christian life, not realizing that the battle is real, that we do have an enemy that is strong. And so we have to remember the call of God to stand firm and to pay attention to what he tells us concerning the armor of God. So we have reached the armor of God beginning in verse 14 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. And it runs all the way through verse 17 of the same chapter. Now, some people include prayer as belonging to the armor of God. I have a little bit of a different opinion on that, and I will say more of that at the end of the sermon. But I want to begin by giving you a brief and a general introduction to the armor of God. I think having a bit of context would prove very helpful as we dive into this section of the book of Ephesians. What is the armor of God? What is the idea behind it? Now, for the vast majority of my time as a young teenager and even as a young adult, the concept of the armor of God had a very mystical ring to it. I have to confess that to you. I was very confused about the armor of God, especially in my younger years. I used to think of the armor of God as actual pieces of an armor made of some kind of spiritual material that were kind of floating around somewhere and they were uh, you were supposed to grab them and put them on. Now, this type of understanding came as a result of uh, some teaching to which I had been exposed. I remember one prominent pastor saying, But the only way to put on the armor was to literally say the words, meaning you had to say, Lord, today I put on the belt of truth. Like I literally am putting on the belt of truth and I'm putting on the breastplate of righteousness and so on. And it soon became a type of mantra for me very quickly. And I I thought, well, I guess if you pray that prayer long enough, you will have the armor on. Now, I know that pastor had good intentions But his teaching was somewhat confusing, to say the least. How do we think of the armor of God properly? Let me try to give you a theological framework to help us in this endeavor. Here are four truths that we must keep in mind as we consider the armor of God. First, the first thing that you need to keep in mind is this. It is imperative that when we think of the armor of God, we never do so apart from Christ. Never think of the armor of God apart from Christ and his work for us. I made this point last week, but I think it is worth repeating. The armor of God makes absolutely no sense apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we study each of the pieces of the armor of God, we must do so with our eyes fixed on the Lord. Second, we must never forget that all the pieces of this armor are graces of the spirit of God. Are graces of the spirit of God given to us in Christ Jesus. In this sense, taking up or putting on the armor of God is not about begging God to give us something we don't have. Rather, it is about appropriating what is already ours in Christ Jesus by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thus, it becomes clear that as William Gurnall said, there can be no perseverance in the battle against sin and the devil without true grace in the heart. Without true grace in the heart. This war, my friends, is not fought in the flesh. Third, notice that we need the whole armor of God, not just parts of the armor of God. In other words, we need all of Christ. For all of life. This is similar to Paul's teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. Notice that it is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. Why? Well, it is one and the same Spirit who produces the fruit in our lives. The manifestation of that fruit is diverse, but the source is one, namely the spirit of God. Likewise, the armor of God cannot be divided into all these different pieces as though you can grab one and leave the other or desire one at the expense of the other. We need the whole armor of God in order to stand firm in this battle for holiness, which leads me to the fourth Point or word of counsel as we consider the armor of God and is this remember that when we talk about the armor of God our end goal is always to be is always going to be practical holiness practical holiness in other words Each of the pieces of the armor of God is meant to lead us into greater and greater holiness as we all persevere in our desire to become more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the end goal of what we are doing here today and what we do every Sunday as we come together as God's people. Now with those four words of direction in place, let's ask a second major question. Where does the idea of the armor of God come from? What is the biblical background for the armor of God? I want to answer this question by looking at three particulars of biblical teaching. The first one is this the establishment of spiritual warfare. Then we'll look at the specific language of the prophet Isaiah. And finally, we'll look at the application of this prophetic language by the Apostle Paul. So let's look at the first one the establishment of spiritual warfare. Here we are speaking about the foundation of it all. Spiritual warfare is a fact. Not only is it a fact, but it is a fact that was established by God himself in the Garden of Eden. The account given to us in the book of Genesis, chapter three, verse 15, is highly, highly revealing. And it stands at the very back of all spiritual warfare, even to this day, the roots of this invisible battle go all the way back to the Garden of Eden as recorded for us by Moses. After the fall of Adam and Eve, this is what God said to Satan, who was being represented by the serpent. You remember those words. This is what God said to the serpent. And I will put what? Enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What is the key word here? Enmity. This is a declaration of war coming from the mouth of God himself against Satan. Hence, the analogy of war and the need for the armor during conflict. Of course, this is a prophetic word, which was ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the offspring of Eve. He is the seed of Eve who would come to bruise the serpent's head and effectually kill it. But please notice that there is no peace between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. There is a perpetual conflict taking place. And this enmity is an ongoing conflict. It's an indication of war. Therefore, the language of the armor of God Finds its roots in this particular event. Enmity is established, the enemy is at large, and the need for the spiritual armor is born. So, the origins of the spiritual warfare, as it pertains to human beings, is as ancient as creation itself. Spiritual warfare has been around for millennia. Secondly, or letter B, consider with me the specific language of one particular prophet, Prophet Isaiah. I want to point this out. I believe this is important. This particular prophet lived and ministered approximately 700 years before the time of Jesus and the time of the apostle Paul. But if we are going to understand the idea of spiritual warfare and the armor of God, we need to enter into the ministry of this prophet. Why? The answer is simple, but it is extremely relevant. Isaiah spoke of God as being a warrior. Isaiah spoke of God as being a warrior who is himself engaged in battle. For instance, after seeing the immense lack of justice that was taking place among the people of Israel, this is what Isaiah said about God. Listen to the language in Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 17. He, this is Isaiah speaking of God, God, or he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. This is God. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he, meaning God, repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render payment. This is God. This is a description of God. Here's Isaiah, the prophet, presenting God as one who himself prepares for battle, who comes to the field in full armor, and he's ready to wage war against those who oppose him. It is an astonishing picture of God. And this was prophet Isaiah speaking of God approximately 700 years before the coming of Jesus. But now I want you to know with me something even more astonishing from the pain of Isaiah. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. And I want us to read how Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Consider the language And this is, of course, a messianic prophecy. This is Isaiah speaking of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the root of Jesse. Follow along as I read and consider the language employed by the prophet as he describes the Messiah, beginning in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he, listen to this, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Verse 5. Righteousness shall be the what? The belt of his waist. And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Did you hear the language? Sound familiar? Did you hear how Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah, the descendant of Jesse and of David? According to Isaiah, this Messiah would be one to wear a belt of righteousness and a belt of faithfulness, meaning he would be one who would live righteously and faithfully. It is not a coincidence then that the Apostle Paul used similar language. It is not a coincidence. Far from it. After all, don't we believe... That the Bible has one unified message and that this one message is all centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, we do. This leads me to the third aspect of the biblical background for the armor of God that I want to point out to you. And that is this, the application of prophetic language by the apostle Paul. The fact that Paul spoke to Christians and told them to wear the belt The breastplate, the shoes, and to take up the shield, the helmet, and the sword means what? That Paul understood Christians, listen to this, to be living in the times prophesied by Isaiah, meaning the end times. The fact that Paul appropriated this prophetic language and applied it to us, Christians, means that we are right now living in the time in which the root of Jesse, meaning Christ, is bearing fruit. In other words, Jesus is advancing his kingdom. Jesus is conquering his enemies as we speak right now. The rod of his mouth is striking the earth as his word is proclaimed in all the earth. We are living in the end times, brothers and sisters. And this has been true ever since the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the root of Jesse. As G.K. Beale and Benjamin Glad say in their book, the story retold, and I quote, by applying these texts from Isaiah to the church, Paul argues that believers participate in the end time battle that began with the person of Christ. And then they add this, and I quote, Jesus won a D-Day victory over the devil and Christians fight in the wake of that decisive victory in skirmishes against Satan and his allies, end quote. I love that. This This is then the Holy Spirit is communicating to us through the apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter six, beginning in verse 10 the spiritual warfare in which we are all involved, this wrestling in which we actively participate is in reality a manifestation of God's war against Satan and against evil. And we, as the people of God, saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and sealed by the Spirit of God, have no choice but to fight, for we wrestle. The battle is fierce, the enemy is strong. Moreover, we are constantly under attack, From three different fronts. What are those three different fronts? The flesh, the world, and the devil, the evil forces of Satan. However, we have the armor of God and the very first piece of the armor, which we are called to put on as we engage in battle is the belt of truth. Why? Well, the answer is simple because this is the very first reality Satan is seeking to destroy. Satan hates truth. Thus, we need to put on the belt. Let me ask you, don't we have enough evidence right now that Satan is indeed seeking to destroy truth at all costs? Have you watched the news lately? From where do you think all the gender confusion comes from? From where did the evil notion, the evil, we need to call it what it is, the evil notion of homosexual marriage come from? From where did the ideas that are destroying the family come from? I want you to stop and think for a moment. All these things are distortions of one thing, truth. All of them. Every single one of them. They are distortions of one thing. Truth. This is what Satan hates. If this wasn't a scheme of Satan, then we wouldn't need to put on the belt of truth, would we? At this point, we must ask two questions. The first one is obvious. What is the belt of truth? What is the belt of truth? Well, The fact that Paul uses the analogy of the belt is extremely telling for several reasons. First, consider the belt's purpose in a Roman soldier. The belt was a piece of thick leather that went around the waist of the soldier and it held his inner garments in place. It was an essential piece of the soldier's armor as it ensured that he wouldn't get tangled up in his own garments as he fought So not having the belt would have proven fatal. Second, consider the belt's placing. It went around the soldier's loins or the muscles of his lower back. The belt provided extra protection for those vital organs. Third, consider the the belt's versatility. The belt's versatility. The belt was the piece to which both the breastplate and the sword were attached. In other words, the belt was critical to the rest of the armor. And fourth, consider the belt's priority. As the soldier prepared for battle, what was the first thing he put on? It was the belt. As you can see, the belt was a non-negotiable for battle in a literal sense. Likewise, when it comes to spiritual battle, Paul says our belt is truth. Therefore, if we understand Paul's analogy correctly, We could say it like this. Truth is to the Christian what the belt was was to the Roman soldier. In other words, truth possesses similar attributes. This is what we mean. Truth holds everything together for the Christian. Truth protects our inner being. Truth promotes righteousness, and it is an offensive against the enemy. And truth is where everything starts. Well, then, even though we are moving in the right direction, we still have an obvious question to answer, don't we? It is an ancient question that Pilate asked of Jesus just moments before the crucifixion. What is that question? What is truth? What is truth? In a sense, we have to say that all the pieces of the armor overlap, don't they? They don't, they, they do all the pieces of the armor. They overlap. For instance, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness overlap. Since truth promotes righteousness and righteousness is the outflow of truth. So they overlap. What about, for instance, the shoes of the gospel of peace? Well, what did Paul say in Ephesians 1:13? Listen to what he says in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of Truth, and then he defines that as the gospel of your salvation. You see what I mean? All the pieces of the armor are intimately interwoven and interconnected, just like what we see in the fruit of the Spirit. But there is a sense in which we need to, be tried to, need to try to be specific when it comes to the question of truth. Now, there are many places where we could go, but I just want us to turn to one place in particular. Go in your Bibles to the gospel of John chapter eight, the gospel of John chapter eight. And we'll begin in verse 31. Here we are trying to define what truth is. It is important. If we're going to wear the belt of truth, we need to know what truth is beginning in verse 31 of John eight. Here's Jesus. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Did you get that? After reading these verses, it is clear that sinners are set free from the bondage of sin by what? By the truth, by the truth. But what is the truth? Is it the word or is it the son? Well, the good news is that we don't have to choose between them. Because the word testifies about the truth and Jesus is the truth. What is truth then? It is this, the knowledge of God in and through the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in Holy Scripture. That is the truth. That is truth. But even though that sounds good, it seems like the definition of truth is missing too many parts, right? What about all the truths that are found in scriptures about relationships and work ethic and government and family and sexuality and on and on? What about those issues? What about those truths? Well, here's my answer. All those issues, all those issues ultimately have to do with the knowledge of God in and through Jesus Christ as revealed in scripture. Why? Because for the Christian, Jesus is life. Jesus is our life. Jesus is not simply a nice addition to your life. Jesus defines everything about your life. And every truth in relation to any issue whatsoever should point us back to Christ. For instance, we, we can firmly say that there is only one definition of marriage, not two or three And that marriage is and always will be between one man and one woman. Why? Because Jesus defines marriage for us. He tells us what it is. Jesus defines how a husband should treat his wife and how a wife should relate to her husband. Jesus defines and establishes the roles of the members of any family, anywhere, in any part of the world. Jesus establishes the role of government along with its limitations. And Jesus even defines and determines how we should understand illness, viruses, crises, and yes, even death. I liken this to what Paul said to the Corinthians. Do you remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in first Corinthians chapter two, verse two, it's kind of a confusing statement. He said this, for I decided to know nothing among you, Except what? Except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Did he mean by that that the only thing he was going to write about and say was Jesus Christ and him crucified? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, if you have read 1 Corinthians, you know that that's not true. What did he mean by that? I decided to know nothing among you except one thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Crucified. What did he mean? He meant to say that everything... In life is about Jesus and him crucified. And whether we're talking about marriage, sex, relationships, discipline, immorality, sin, repentance, sanctification, salvation, government, or whatever else. Jesus stands as the pillar that holds all things together. That's what Paul meant. And when it comes to truth as a weapon of defense in the spiritual warfare against Satan, nothing changes. And all this comes from God's written word, the Bible, which at its core is a Testament to the Lord Jesus from Genesis to revelation. Jesus stands at the center of all redemptive history and he rules everything. So the truth is then the knowledge of God in and through the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in Holy scripture. Now, let me push this a little further. Paul is inviting us to put on to put on or to fasten on the belt of truth. What do we make of that? What do we make of that? Well, if the truth is the knowledge of God in the person of Jesus as revealed in scripture to put on the belt means in a general sense, at least listen to this to grow in our submission to Christ in all areas of life, as we are guided by the word to grow in our submission to Christ in all areas of life. As we are guided by the word, this as everything, this has everything to do with spiritual warfare. For this is where Satan focuses his attention and his schemes. You see, Satan wants the opposite for you. Satan schemes so that you make up your own mind about everything, apart from divine authority, which belongs to God and to God alone. This is Satan's number one scheme. It all begins with truth. Let me ask you, isn't it that exactly what what he did in the Garden of Eden with Eve? What did he tell her in the Garden of Eden? Eve, this is what he told her. Think about this. Eve, think for yourself. I know that sounds weird, right? Eve, think for yourself. Meaning, stop thinking of God as your ultimate reference point and standard of truth, free yourself from his epistemological authority. How do you like that word? What is epistemological authority? Well, epistemology is a fancy word for knowledge. God is the ultimate authority when it comes to knowledge, for he knows all things perfectly and truthfully. He is the truth. Everything that is true is true because it corresponds to reality as created by God and for his glory. When you stop thinking that way, when that is no longer your framework of thought, you make a mess of life. And this, my brothers and sisters, is precisely what Satan wants. He wants you to stop thinking of God as the ultimate reference point and standard of truth. Satan is cheering you on. And he's telling you, free your thinking from the authority of God. He's cheering for your autonomous thinking. Free yourself from the authority and the glory of God as its ultimate goal. Go ahead. Make up your own truth. Make up your own truth. You can be whatever you want. You can think however you want. You can define marriage any way you want. You can define sexuality any way you want. Truth is whatever you want it to be. That's what Satan has been working at for a long time. So here's what's involved in putting on the belt of truth. Listen to this. You must labor. You must labor to see all areas of your life within the all encompassing conviction that Christ Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that no area is beyond the Lordship of Christ. That is what it means to put on the belt of truth. It is the lifelong commitment To learning to see all of life, including, but not limited to, your relationships, your job, your entertainment, your hobbies, your reading habits, your politics, your words, your actions, your reactions, your thought life, and whatever else as servants of Christ. If your ultimate reference point for everything is Christ Jesus, it is unlikely Satan will be able to confuse you about anything. So, now that we know the answer to that what question, we must ask the follow up question, which is equally important how? How do we put on the belt of truth? We cannot afford to miss this. Clearly, Paul is calling us not simply to accept something as true, but to act on it. At a very basic level, this means that in the mind of the Apostle Paul, truth is not simply something to which you must assent, rather, truth is transformative. Truth is transformative. Therefore, to put on the belt of truth must involve both the mind and the heart, meaning our knowledge and our affections. Truth apprehended by the mind must soon be embraced by the heart. If not, it often becomes a tool for boasting. So putting on the belt of truth, therefore, involves both the mind and the heart. Let me remind you. Let me remind you that few things are more dangerous to the Christian life than divorcing knowledge from obedience. Okay? Few things are more dangerous to the Christian life than divorcing knowledge from obedience. This brings us to our application. Our application. For this, I want you to consider with me the very first word that Paul used in verse 14 of Ephesians 6. What is the very first word he used in verse 14? Stand. Stand. Interesting, isn't it? Consider also verse 18. What is the first word he used in verse 18? Praying. Praying at all times. So how do we stand in this battle? Somewhat. Paradoxically, we stand in the battle against Satan by falling on our knees before God. We stand in the battle against Satan by falling on our knees before God. What is the point of contact between all the pieces of the armor? Or as we ask commonly, where does the rubber meet the road? What is the ultimate point of application in all this? Two words, incessant prayer incessant prayer, consider all the pieces of the armor, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. None of them can be appropriated apart from incessant prayer. Hence the need for us to pray both individually and as a church, we minimize prayer to our own demise. So let me give you just three points of application related to prayer. As you put on truth, as you put on the belt of truth, and as you pray for the belt of truth, consider number one, meditate often upon the transcendent excellency of truth. The transcendent excellency of truth. This is what William Gurnall said Meditate often upon the transcendent excellency of truth. Brothers and sisters, the call to put on the belt of truth requires that we train ourselves to love the truth as it is in Christ Jesus revealed in His Word. But this doesn't just happen. We must exercise our mental muscles to this end. This was David's practice, wasn't it? What did he say in Psalm 119, verse 97? David said, oh, how I love your law. And then David said, it is my meditation all day. My friends, can I tell you how I know? Can I tell you how I know that spiritual warfare is real and very, very fierce? You know how I know this? The evidence is this. David's words in Psalm 119 verse 97 seem foreign to many, many professing Christians. That's how I'm facing you with a, with a fact. Not very many in this room are familiar with this concept of saying, I love your law. And it is my meditation day and night. Number two, as you pray for the belt of truth in your life, As you pray, as you pray, ask for inward conformity of your heart to truth. Inward conformity. Let me ask you a question. Maybe you are at peace with the truth in your mind, but are you at peace with the truth in your heart? Your intellect may be fond of the truth, but are your affections equally enthralled with it? A few examples. You may say, I love the truth. You want to be practical about this, right? You may say, I love the truth, but are you fleeing from sexual immorality? Are you fleeing from sexual immorality? You may say, I love the truth, but are you putting away anger? You may say, I love the truth, but are you counting others more significant than yourself? You may say, I love the truth, but are you living and walking in fear? Put on the belt of truth means we must seek greater conformity of the heart to the truth we say we believe. And finally, finally, number three, as you pray for the belt of truth, as you pray for the application of this in your life, Plead with God for the willingness to endure the cost of living by and loving the truth of Jesus Christ. You know what? The time is coming. And I think it is here when it's going to cost you to live by the truth and love the truth. Why? Well, we see it everywhere, don't we? Truth is being disgraced, minimized, and even denied these days. Satan hates it, and it will cost you to love and live by the truth. You must pray for the strength of the Lord to stand firm. Consider the words of William Gurnall. He said this in the 1600s. There's what he says, and I quote, there are, listen to this kind of prophetic word. There are engines of death continually preparing in the thoughts and desires of Satan and his instruments against the sincere professors of the truth. And then Gurnell said this in the 1600s, Satan comes first with the spirit of error and then of persecution he first corrupts men's minds with error, and then he enrages their hearts with wrath against the professors of truth. End quote: "Do you realize that we are living in a time in which standing up for the truth, living according to the truth, will cost you." Are you training your children? Let me talk to parents real quick. Are you training your children? Do you realize that someday they will leave the home? They will leave the home. They will face the world. Are they standing? Are you calling them? Are you training them? Are you teaching them the truth? That is our call for this morning. Let us pray to God. Father, we thank you for this simple yet important reminder to stand and to believe and to live by, to be conformed by the truth. The truth as it is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, as revealed in your word. Father, let us live with this holy sense of urgency in our lives. That this is not optional for Christians, but that we must seek to live our lives in this fallen world with a true desire to submit every area to the truth as it is found in Christ, revealed in Scripture. Father, help us to be conformed more and more to the truth as we look together to truth incarnate, Christ Jesus himself. Help us to treasure truth and to be like David who meditated upon the truth day and night and loved it. Thank you, Father, for revealing your truth to us in your word and in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray that his name will be exalted in our lives, both here and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.